0: But it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all breathtaking hikes, kid friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at
1: travelwyoming.com. So, what are the booties for? Why do I need them?
2: They're to cover your shoes.
1: So I don't track um, flesh into my hotel room tonight? Is that the idea?
3: I mean, if you're into that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's basically to protect your feet from getting gross, more than anything.
2: Um, You know, you don't want to spread biohazardous materials anywhere.
0: I'm Nate. I'm Felix. And this is Outside In. Now, a few months ago, Felix, you came to a team meeting, and you proposed to fly to North Carolina to take a tour of a very special facility where researchers study something that's, uh, like, I mean, what what adjectives would you use here, Felix? Felix.
1: Um, definitely morbid. Yes. Some would say gross, but I feel like that's a little disrespectful. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a little bit gross, but like, yeah,
1: also natural. Just something natural, but also like very few of us ever see up close and personal.
0: So obviously, we said yes. We sent Felix to North Carolina, where we put on some yeah, protective um, booties.
1: These kind of look like um, shower caps that I'm putting on my feet. And walked inside this fenced off enclosure. And lying on the ground... Oh, are about 20 dead, rotting human bodies. Oh, it smells. This is a place where people study human decomposition.
0: Human decomposition is the stuff of murder mysteries and horror movies. I mean, it scares us. A lot of people would rather not think about it, and yet death
1: is a natural
0: process. It sustains and gives life to other beings like birds, flies, and microbes.
1: And you know, we're always saying that our show is about the natural world and how we use it. But what about a show about how the natural world uses us?
4: Some small animal comes and takes a big bite out of the side, and the whole body collapses like a balloon.
1: Today on Outside In, I take a tour of a human decomposition facility, also known as a body farm to see what insights the people working here have about death.
0: Should we have a content warning for this?
1: Yeah, I don't wanna say skip this episode if it makes you feel uncomfortable because when I stepped in there, I was definitely uncomfortable. But I am going to be describing what I saw in there. So this episode may not be for everybody.
5: The first time I saw a fresh donor, it was very weird for me.
1: So first, Nate, have you ever heard of a body farm?
0: Yes, I've heard of body farms, but honestly, I don't know much about them.
1: So the first modern body farm, which is more officially known as a human decomposition facility, was established by a forensic anthropologist named Dr. Bill Bass. So Bass is in his 90s now, and he's been called in to testify in lots of murder cases as early as the 1950s. He's examined all sorts of human remains to estimate their age, their sex, their height. But that work is based mostly off of looking at skeletons. Bass knew a lot less about how human bodies decompose. And there's a particular case in 1977 that he got really wrong. What did he get wrong? So there was this one case in Tennessee where authorities dug up this headless corpse that looked pretty fresh. Bass was quoted by newspapers as saying that the victim had been dead two months to a year tops. But authorities later realized that this was actually the body of a Lieutenant Colonel William Shy, who was killed in 1864 in the Civil War. What? That's that's ridiculous. Right? That's so off. Yeah. This mistake came back to haunt Bass. Like, in the courtroom, attorneys would cross-examine him and be like, Didn't you once get the time since death wrong by a whopping 112 years?
0: Well, I mean, that does go to show you that, like, at the end of the day, even the experts are just giving educated
1: guesses. And thankfully, in this case, they figured it out in the end. But can you imagine if they didn't? Like, they might have ended up wrongfully convicting someone of murder, and they would have justified it all from Bass's testimony. Ugh. yeah. But anyways... Back to the story. Bass realizes that he has a lot to learn about human decomposition. So he establishes the University of Tennessee Anthropological Research Facility in 1980. It's the first modern place dedicated to studying how human bodies decompose. And then the second facility opens in 2007 at Western Carolina University in North Carolina. And it's where I got to touch my first ever human bone. Can I touch one of these? Yeah, for sure. So this is Nick Pasolacqua. He's the director of the Forensic Anthropology Program, and he's showing me the university's skeleton collection. I'm I'm (laughs) surprised you're even letting me do this. (laughs) um, But they're all pretty light. You know, these are
2: all from our donors. And so the vast majority of our donors are uh, elderly. And some of these donors may have had osteoporosis, for example. And so their bones are going to probably feel lighter because they've gone through that degrading process biologically over time
0: did he say donors
1: yeah i mean they gotta get their bodies from somewhere right right yeah so you can pre-register to have your body donated here after you die
2: so these are all willed body donors they've all been processed and now they're all you know essentially in curation here what
1: does this room look like So the collection is like a library, but instead Mm -hmm. of stacks of books, just imagine stacks of boxes on shelves. There's one disassembled skeleton in each box.
0: And these are like totally clean skeletons, right?
1: Yeah. When they say they're processed, they mean like all the soft tissue has been removed.
0: Right. But they had to come from somewhere. They didn't always look that way.
1: They come from somewhere. They come from the place that is next on my tour that Nick brings me. Hello? Nice to meet you in person. Nice to
3: meet
1: you, too. The processing lab.
3: So um, we just had a shift finish up. So they just essentially clean the tools um, and clean the surface areas of their stuff. um, Mm -hmm. So the next shift isn't walking into a complete disaster.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, This is Dr. Rebecca George, who goes by Becca. Becca's the facility curator, and she manages the student volunteers. So we're in this lab now. It's this windowless room with fluorescent lighting. And I see a tray of bones on a stainless steel table. I think they're mostly rib bones, thigh bones, and some pieces of backbone. Yeah, so so where, where did these bones, did they just come from the decomposition facility?
3: Um, yes, this one um, was kind of in a rough spot. It had been like really wet and, and gross and moldy. So this donor has actually been out there since 2020. Um, uh, one of the last ones that we have out there
1: from that year. Um, everyone so
0: wait, the bones are moldy? Like, do they have moldy skin on them or something?
1: No, there's not anything really left on the bone. It's pretty bare bone. OK. Um, but these bones are wet. They're dark brown, almost black in some spots. And there's just these teeny bits of like white stuff on it. I, I would say it almost looks like plaque. Huh. Maybe maybe I'll touch things later. <laughs> so as Beck and I talk, a few students are coming in and sitting down around the stainless steel table.
3: This is Kedri and Victoria.
1: Hi. Each of them has a bone they're working on and they're methodically scraping and picking at that white plaque-like stuff. And they're using dental picks and tweezers and they're gently brushing it with toothbrushes. And they're just having casual conversation while they're at it.
5: I went to my dorm after going to the body farm and I just sniffed my mouthwash for like two minutes just to try to get the smell away. Did it work? Yes, it did. I usually use like these vapor Rub. Very strong. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Felix, this is not what I think about as your typical college work study. Like, what makes a person want to study dead bodies when they grow up?
1: Yeah, totally. No, I had that question, too, and I asked them and they all had pretty similar answers to each other.
5: There's this one show, Bones, that, like, it kind of <laughs> introduces people. I actually never watched Bones. That one what? wasn't mine.
1: Which, which one was, was
0: it? Um,
5: my two were CSI and NCIS. Okay. Okay. Those are the ones I
2: watched.
1: I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. It had to be something like CSI or bones. Totally. Yeah, okay. In fact, there's a term for this, and it's called the CSI
0: effect. It's like Jurassic Park. When everybody watched Jurassic Park and they got excited about becoming a paleontologist, Yeah. it sounds like the same thing.
1: And Becca, the facility curator, says the CSI effect is what got her into forensic anthropology— And she says it's what got a lot of women into it as well. Two of the main CSI investigators in the original series were women. And these days, about 80% of forensic science students are women, up from about 64% when CSI first came out in 2000. That's really interesting. Although I should say that the methods that are in these shows are not accurate portrayals of real life.
0: I'm going to be honest that Definitely doesn't surprise me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the lab students tell me that in the shows, the forensic experts, they just take like a quick look at a dead body at a crime scene and they're like, okay, this person was a five foot six female in her mid forties, you know?
0: Right. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Yep.
1: (laughs) But in real life, they're just estimates and it's a much more involved, slow process, bringing the body into the lab, removing all the soft tissue from the body. Which, by the way, that sometimes involves boiling the remains in crock pots, you know, like slow cookers,
0: oh man, you just made me like not want to ever make bone broth again because <laughs> that's how I make bone broth.
1: <laughs> I mean, what else is better at that than crock pots? How else do you get fall off the bone consistency? Nate?
0: <laughs> oh, thank you for that, Felix. There goes like any appetite I've ever had for ribs. Thank you,
1: so yeah, it's a bit of a process, but. I don't get the sense from these students that they're disappointed with real-life forensic anthropology being different from the shows. Mm -hmm. If anything, they appreciate the slow, methodical nature of the work.
5: It's almost calming. Mm -hmm.
1: This is Carly Green. Because
5: it's just something, like, you don't have to use your brain. You can just sit here and just work on cleaning off a bone, and then you're done. Dr. George is always talking about how it's just kind of, like, mind-numbing.
1: This is Victoria Deal.
5: And it's kind of something a lot of us need during the week, you know. Like, we're still being productive, but we're not having to, you know, overanalyze things and read
1: articles. and. Yeah, yeah. I can see how you can kind of zone out. Apparently, more students tend to sign up for this work closer to finals as a way to de-stress. Oh, yeah.
0: It's like when I get really stressed out and I clean my apartment or I, like, organize my record collection or something like that. And cleaning
1: things. Cleaning, cleaning things, is exactly. a very meditative experience. And
0: it's cool because they, they, just, they, they seem so comfortable doing this.
1: Yeah, working with bones doesn't seem too difficult for students, but when it comes to corpses that are either fresh or actively decomposing, that's when it can be difficult.
3: Um, my name is Carter Unger. I am a forensic anthropology and criminal justice double major at Western Carolina University. So Carter
1: Unger knew she wanted to do forensics by the time she was a sophomore in high school when she got here
3: I was so nervous up to the point of going there like I felt sick because I was going to be disappointed in myself if I couldn't handle it but then I did go I was it was very overwhelming because it became real um
1: overwhelming in what way like like you're you were feeling something
3: it was a bit emotional just because I hadn't been exposed to that circumstance before I've never been in one of those situations And I remember talking about it with you after, I believe. And I was just Mm -hmm. like, "Did that actually happen?" Like,
1: Carter's talking to her friend Maggie Clem here, who's a semester ahead of her. And
3: I don't know. We were on my bed, Mm -hmm. and I started talking about it. And whenever I talk about like how I'm feeling, I start crying, (laughs) and you usually laugh at me.
1: (laughs) You (laughs) laugh at her. Those people.
3: (laughs) No. Yeah, I laugh, but (laughs) she knew that (laughs) that was my way of comforting her. I had questioned whether I wanted to go into forensic anthropology due to, can I handle this? Can I be around deceased individuals and do that as my job? It was just very surreal. Not in, like, a disgusting sense, just in a, this is a human being. That eventually, in forensic and criminal justice contexts, will need my help.
1: Carter used to have this recurring nightmare. It was of an autopsied corpse, and the torso was cut wide open with what's called a Y-cut. It was just that
3: over and over and over again.
1: Well, how did you feel? Like? <laughs>
3: I did not like sleeping <laughs> for a little bit, but I eventually just, I kept telling myself, this is normal. This is not disgusting. This is not gross this is a human being that is in front of me that has donated their body to science and it clicked and i was like i can find i can do this
0: okay so coming up felix goes out to see the decomposition part of the decomposition facility and fair warning this is the more graphic part of the episode But first, I want to remind folks out there that we have a free newsletter. So if you want to see some pictures from Felix's trip to the decomposition facility, and don't worry, we won't include anything too graphic, you can sign up for free at outsideinradio.org. We'll be right back. Hey, Nate here. Have you ever dreamed of going on the voyages of some of the most famous and not-so-famous explorers in history? If so, then you should check out the Explorers podcast. Host Matt Breen takes you into jungles and frigid wastelands, across deserts and oceans, and to the top of great mountains as you explore the triumph, glory, and tragedy of each explorer. There are extraordinary stories of Shackleton, Magellan, Cook, Lewis and Clark, and so many other daring people from all across the world and from throughout history. Each explorer's story is told in rich, immersive detail. And each topic is given as much time as needed to tell the whole tale, ranging from 30 minutes to 10 hours. There's something for everyone. Find the Explorers Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or go to
1: explorerspodcast.com to learn more. Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Nate. I'm Felix. Now, before we go see the decomposing bodies, Nate, I'm wondering have you ever seen a dead body? Yeah, I have.
0: Uh previous girlfriend her her uh, her brother passed away ten years ago, and yeah. we saw his his body. and it was a really powerful experience in the sense that that whole family was really goofy, and mm. they dealt with the death in like a morbidly goofy way that made sense for that family. Like they were, they loved him so much, and I just remember them putting cigarettes into his nose. Oh my gosh! And like it was funny because he was a funny guy, yeah. and it was just like—and that's like something it,
1: he would have done in in, in when he was alive. Absolutely, yeah.
0: He would have, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he didn't look like he was sleeping. By the way, he looked definitely dead. What about you, Felix? Have you seen a dead body?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have seen loved ones uh, in the wake. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, my my experience, though, with the wakes, though, is that they do try to, you know, they put the makeup on, they embalm. Right. They right. Uh, tape their eyes shut, is what I understand.
0: To create an illusion is that they're sleeping, right?
1: Right. Which I feel like is the opposite thing that these students are doing. You know, they're seeing death and they're not creating any illusions about it. They're looking at it straight on. Not just looking at it, they're touching it and smelling it. They're basically just getting used to seeing death and dead bodies as dead bodies as, as what dead they bodies. are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just walking up a gravel road. Okay, so I'm walking with Nick Pasalacqua, the director of the Forensic Anthropology program, and we're going to the enclosure of decomposing bodies is like half a mile off campus. It's a beautiful day, sunny and warm. And after I get my shoe booties on to protect my shoes, we walk up to this big fenced off area. This is double fenced.
2: So we have a tall wooden privacy fence surrounded by a chain link fence with razor wire at the top. Mm-hmm. So this is really, we're doing everything we can to kind of ensure, you know, privacy and protection of our doors yeah. that are on the
1: surface. Inside, it's mostly exposed soil with some weeds here and there. And on the surface are about 20 donors. They're spaced out roughly in a grid. Most of them are lying on their backs. Some of them are on their sides. A lot of them are splayed out in like a starfish pattern. Most have their jaws wide open. Are... are they wearing clothes? No, they're not wearing clothes. They're just bare, rotting flesh that's like yellow, red, black, and brown. And there are flies everywhere. And the smell, it just hits me. How would I describe the smell?
5: <laughs> Cloying, sweet. That's how I
1: describe it. I'm not gonna lie, I almost feel like throwing up. I would not
0: blame you for throwing up. But beyond how you're feeling physically, how are you feeling emotionally?
1: That's a really interesting question because like, I, I feel like I'm a child again. Like, I just feel like I need my mom or my dad around just to tell me that everything's going to be okay. It's this very visceral feeling. And I guess I just reach out to the closest proxy. Can you uh, walk in here with me, Nick? Sure, of course. So, right away, there's uh, a few bodies right here in front of us. Uh... I'm actually just at a loss for words at this point. I mean, this one here on the left looks... um, I mean, their mouth is wide open. And we have lots of insects and flies surrounding the body. Um, What stage of decomposition would you say this donor is in?
2: It's pretty late stage decomposition, so there's, you know, soft tissue... So
1: I just start asking uh, Nick questions like any questions to fill the silence while I just regain composure. Right. And eventually, once I regain composure, I kind of notice there's this group of three students in there.
5: So uh, we are one of the two photo teams that comes out um, to the farm. We're all student volunteers.
1: This is Mackenzie Gaskin. Mackenzie and the other two students were just very matter-of-fact going around taking photos of the bodies and jotting notes on a clipboard. It was definitely
5: not like this the first time all of us had been out here. I just remember standing, standing there and I couldn't look away because it was like I can't imagine that this this man had just been alive like not even a week ago. Yeah when you're out here three, two to three times a week, you kind of get used to everything. Some stuff still trips us up, like uh, we don't like the sound of the bugs, but there's nothing you can do about that. Or sometimes the smell is really bad. But honestly, it's like, by treating it so matter of factly, I kind of see it as respecting their wishes because they chose to be donated here and so, by respecting that and just doing our jobs correctly, we are able to honor them like the best that we can while they're out here. So, what's the number, Reagan? Um, 2089.
1: And then there's another student who's changing out the batteries on the wildlife cameras that are pointed at the corpses. And they take pictures anytime they detect motion. And later, Becca, the facility curator, actually shows me photos of scavenger activity. And I see vultures pecking and tearing holes into fresh corpses, possums biting away toes and entire feet. And then there are the flies and maggots. Basically, flies will lay their eggs on a decomposing body where the maggots that hatch will have something to eat. And maggots can't eat tissue itself. They can only consume liquids.
2: And so they lay their eggs on open orifices, particularly the eyes, nose, mouth, ears, and genitals.
1: And when maggots colonize a body, they can really colonize that body.
2: You can really see, like, the whole body kind of pulsing sometimes, depending on how many maggots are in there. What they refer to as a maggot mass. And that maggot mass can actually produce a lot of heat itself because you have all these bodies wiggling over each other and consuming stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a particularly gross thing, I think. Um, And there's studies where people like entomologists will, you know, insert long thermometers and take the temperature of those maggot masses and it'll be much higher than the ambient temperature around the body. And so like in winter, right when it's cold and you wouldn't think that maggots could be active if they were active first before it started getting really cold. They can kind of keep their own body temperatures up through this maggot mass process and continue to be active when otherwise they should kind of be inactive because of the, the weather.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Like this is a prime example of nature literally using us.
1: Yeah, totally. There's there's also another thing that happens where birds will come and like take away leftover hair to use to create their nests. Really? That's wild. So flies, maggots, and vultures are all pretty standard scavengers. They're all part of what entomologist Sybil Buchli calls outside in decomposition. And then there's inside-out decomposition, where you have your own digestive enzymes that consume your flesh. And then there's microbial activity that consumes you in a process that's called putrefaction.
2: Putrefaction, this microbial bacterial proliferation that's uh, resulted in bloat, and then the bloat collapsed, and that's why you kind of see it looking kind of deflated and wrinkly.
1: So, putrefaction also causes skin discoloration. And it happens in an uneven pattern that's called marbling. They're going to have
2: certain areas that are darker colored and lighter colored, and maybe they're going to have some browns and some blues and whatever else, and they might be, you know, in different places at different times throughout the decomposition process. So that's kind of
0: what's being represented there. I, I can't believe they call it marbling, because now I'm never going to look at a steak the same way. <laughs>
1: Yeah. You know, all these food and human decomposition crossovers, actually those three students in the lab when I was talking to them, yeah, th- they had talked about sometimes how they'd be eating something and then something they were eating or smelling like triggered uh, a-, a body fire memory, a, a memory from the, the facility. And they-, they would just like do a double take, stop eating, be like, whoa, no, I can't. <laughs>
0: Felix, this is, this is all like really interesting, and also I'm so happy that we have star producers like you to go to the body farm so that, that I don't have to, because I don't know if I could handle it in the same way that you you were able to handle it.
1: I, I think you'd be surprised, Nate. I think you could do it. <laughs> Maybe. So anyways, after this inside-out decomposition, this putrefaction, the body starts to mummify. This,
2: this person's much more dried out, right? Like all the, the tissue looks... Very dry, very mummified, kind of like a shroud of, of uh, desiccated, dried, mummified tissue.
1: Sometimes mummified. a body will skip putrefaction when it saponifies first and becomes a what's called a wax mummy. This is when a body becomes set in a cast of fat tissue because there isn't enough oxygen and the environment is really damp, huh. like, say, in the mud at the bottom of a lake or in a sealed and damp casket. But this isn't too common. Most bodies are eaten by scavengers and go through putrefaction. And then eventually, it'll be mostly skeleton that's left. This is called skeletonization, which is where all of the bodies in this enclosure are headed.
0: Felix, talking to these students, seeing the bodies, I mean, did it change the way you look at death at all?
1: Yeah, I I would say that it remove the barrier between life and death for me. Like, the two don't feel as separate anymore. How so? Well, you know, uh, here's one example. Like, not too long after I did my reporting trip, I had a dentist appointment, and... I just had this thought while the hygienist was cleaning my teeth, like she's using the same dental picks and tools that those students were using in the processing lab. It's like, you are cleaning my skeleton right now, like (laughs) the exposed part of my skeleton. That is a way to look at it. Yeah. (laughs) So like death in this case is like not that far from life, I felt like. But on the other hand, life is also not so far from death. But Mm -hmm. in this case, like the donor that's right in front of us here, he's still got his facial hair. Um, like you just kind of imagine like. It it almost looks like the position he's in. He's like, yelling out to like, catch the bus or something. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> he's, he's doing something. He's like, I'm trying to imagine him like alive. I feel mm-hmm. like, because he's not that far from having been alive, mm-hmm. but in actuality, he's quite dead, and he has he has flies kind of flying in and out of his mouth, and is flying in and out of his eye socket. And Nate, this man wasn't the only one in there who had traces of their life still left on them. Like, there was a woman whose arms and hands were nearly mummified, but her nails were painted this beautiful pattern of, like, this cosmic purple color and gold glittering stars. It really struck me because, I, I mean, it's cliche to say that life is fleeting, but Somehow seeing these perfectly painted nails on this person's rotting body that's slowly turning to dust, I really felt it viscerally that like nothing in this life lasts. I just felt kind of sad. And it got me wondering, like, who are these people before they die? What were the lives they lived? You know, we'll, we'll never know that because their identities in the facility are, are kept in confidentiality. But I did get to talk to someone else, a woman named Lucinda Denton.
4: I'm curious, how old are you, Lucinda? <laughs> 85. <laughs> You're never supposed to ask a woman her weight or her age, but that's okay. I don't mind. <laughs>
1: Lucinda was born in 1937.
4: In Rocky Mount, North Carolina. And when Lucinda dies, she'll be laid
1: to rest in Knoxville at the University of Tennessee Anthropological Research Facility.
4: I am an official Body Farm future resident. (laughs)
1: Lucinda told me about her life growing up. And when she was a child, there was the polio epidemic.
4: So... We were isolated, children were isolated during the summer, and I like to catch insects, particularly lightning bugs and June bugs, and put a string on a June bug's leg and let it fly.
1: Lucinda knows what decomposition entails. She's seen it in documentaries. Then once, when she was still a science teacher, Lucinda even took a tour of a science lab where she saw cat remains being devoured by
4: maggots. All of these tables in this nasty, damp, smelly room, but I was fascinated. You know, I don't find it repulsive or, I mean, it's what happens. It's recycling.
1: Recycling. That's what Lucinda wants to happen to her body after she dies. She thinks caskets and tombstones are wasteful. She's never liked the idea of being buried in a cemetery anyway. Not since she was a kid, and every Sunday, her family visited her grandfather's grave.
4: And I was given a bucket of water and a toothbrush to clean the bird poop off of the tombstone while they trim the grass around the tombstone, whatever. So I just have always had a bad connotation to graveyards and tombstones.
1: Someday it'll be Lucinda's time. She says it'll be when she's at least 95. Maybe that's because she's promised her son that they'll go skydiving together on her 95th birthday. But when the time does come for her, She imagines that she'll know it's time and that she'll have told her children.
4: The body has just worn out. The heart has worn out, the kidneys have worn out, and it's time to go. And I told them that I love them and that we've had a good life. And I take my last breath.
1: And then there she is at the body farm.
4: I'm propped up under a tree and it's summertime and inside my body all of the germs and bacteria and everything is saying, okay baby now's the time to go to work we got to get rid of this person. The flies come and lay their little eggs so their little babies can have lots of food on the skin. And then the birds, hey, we've got new babies in the nest, let's go have some fresh eyeball. (laughs) Then the body starts becoming bloated from all of this and then some small animal comes and takes a big bite out of the side and the whole body uh, collapses like a balloon. And do you remember? You probably don't remember, but when I was a child, you would sing a little song. When you are dead, it is said your body turns a slimy green and pus flows out like thick whipped cream. So <laughs> the body goes through the decomposition process that once was me. And all of that goes into the soil and the earth and is recycled back into the tree and the leaves. Evaporation of the water molecules go up and make the clouds and you go floating away in a cloud. And the earth continues even though Lucinda is no longer there.
0: about the decomposition facility at Western Carolina University we'll put a link to their website in the show notes we'll also link to articles about how the field of forensics is changing the way they look at gender and race when they do sex estimations and ancestry estimations and if you want to see pictures from Felix's trip to the decomposition facility we'll post those on our website outsideinradio.org and we'll be sure to separate out the more graphic images if you'd prefer not to look at those Outside In was produced this week by Felix Poon and edited by Taylor Quimby with help from Justine Paradise, Jessica Hunt, Rebecca Lavoie, and me, Nate Hedgie. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer.
1: Thanks to Fawn Fitter for talking to me about registering to become a donor to the UT Knoxville Body Farm. You can read her New York Times article about becoming a donor. A link to that is in the show notes. Thank you to Dr. Katie Zeglick for describing the decom smell as sweet and cloying. And thanks to Jimmy Holt for his recording help with Lucinda. And a special thanks to all of the students who spoke to me on this episode. Carter Unger, Maggie Clem, Carly Green, Victoria Deal, Kajri Green, Mackenzie Gaskin, Reagan Bechla, and Lee Irwin.
0: Music in this episode came from Blue Dot Sessions, DEX 1200, and Silver Maple. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.
3: for y'all. Will y'all be like eating if something will trigger the smell? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Decomp smells nothing like peanut butter.
5: I was eating peanut butter (laughs) and for some reason it triggered the smell and I had a pause.